0: Our hearts and our minds to the message. Um, just, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd uh, pray that you'd help me to um, just be faithful to the scriptures and to obedient to you as I as I share the message this morning. Help me to um, focus on on your word and on your will as I as I uh, uh, preach the, the gospel today. Help me to um, just just do this right. And I pray that you would be with the folks who are here today and touch their hearts and their minds. And Lord God, make them fertile ground for for the seeds that you plant, Lord. I pray that you'd just um just give us grace in this whole thing this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see if I can find my there we are. I asked my wife yesterday to make my slides pretty and she didn't. So I am oh children's are dismissed for children are dismissed for children's church. If you are a small child and would like to attend children's church, um it looks like Samantha is there to to herd you downstairs. Um I, I don't see Mark moving, so I <laughs> um, usually when it comes down to herding, my wife is sort of pushing me in one direction or another. Anyway, so um, I uh, wow, um, I, I for for a number of years, you guys, you know, you know this. I tell these kinds of stories all the time. I I worked in a in a, a mental health facility as a as a chaplain, and uh, one of the coolest like funniest things I would observe, and it happened. 90% of the time, when kids would come in for rehab, right, you these guys who, you know, have been in lockup or whatever with, with drug problems and, you know, long arrest records and everything else, and they'd come in for rehab, and, and I'd, I'd meet these guys, like, 90 some odd percent of the time, I I would have kids approach me, you know, it's like my third day here kind of thing, and they'd approach me with their Bible and sit down and ask some, like, what they would perceive to be a... A genuine and meaningful, deep question, um, and talk about how like they're, you know, wow, I've I've just been growing so much in my three days here. You know, I feel like the Lord has really grabbed a hold of me, and you know, have the conversation, and you know, all right, all right, and and weirdly enough, after about two weeks, that that newfound faith disappeared, and. And then very quickly, the same guys who were asking me these very deep questions were cussing me out or whatever. And, and I, I think that, that I, I, I reached this point. I mean, I had eight years of doing it. I, I'm cynical and horrible. This is sort of my upfront explanation. I, I realized that what was going on was – I didn't take me eight years to figure it out because I wasn't born, you know, like that week. Um, the, the, the assumption was if I sit down and talk to this guy – and I sort of present myself as religious, I could gain an ally and get out of here faster. Um, and as it turns out, like, everyone before them had that idea, and so it actually didn't work very well. Um, and, and being the chaplain, I had almost no influence over who went where, and so, like, as soon as they figured out, hey, this guy ain't going to get me out of here faster, it, you know, that went away, because it, there was no point in being friends with him, you know, and, and over time, usually, when, when healing would happen, you'd see this change. And and um, it's sort of this approach that happens sometimes with folks. They look at people, and the first question they ask is, what can you do for me? Or what will I do for you so you will do for me? Has anybody ever encountered this? I I know it's going to sound horrible, but, like, how many times I've talked to to married folks where, like, or observed where husband has flowers or nice things to say, and what's the wife's response? What'd you do? Or what do you want, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and how does that come about <laughs> experience right <laughs> because at first it works really well and then over time like women begin to figure that out right um like it works just long enough to trick them into marrying you and then it then it goes away um and as i dive into the text here right <laughs> um as I, as I dive into the text here, like, like we're going to be looking at sort of this idea of approaching someone with like an ulterior motive. Everybody with me? Um, and there's a lot of background here. We're going to look at like three verses. But like unfortunately, these three verses require some setup. So I'm going to need you all to hang out. Hang with me for a few minutes because we're going to have to get into it. Um, a little background, we're in the book of John, and John is like this brilliant writer, and one of the things he does is he picks out these major themes, right, and he'll work them through the text, and so they'll keep coming up and keep coming up, phrases or words or ideas, and there's all kinds of symbolism, and it's, I mean, John was this, just, I mean, of the minds in the first century, John john is in the top, like, 3%. He is a very, very brilliant man, um, and probably the Holy Spirit helped him, you know, um, but one of the major themes here is this idea of faith and rejection. And like you see it in the very beginning of the book, right, like in that first chapter, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all that other stuff. Um, there's this this presentation of the idea that the word would show up, the light would come into the world, and men would, j- like, reject the light because they love darkness, right? You know, well, I, I don't want to hear what you have to say, Jesus. I love what I'm doing. And please don't shine a light on what I'm doing. Everybody with me? And this is this recurring theme, and it's going to happen over and over and over again in the first half of John and actually again in the end of John, and we'll touch on some of this. um, John makes major points by telling a story and then offering explanation or pairing stories together with what's called a saddle verse that sort of connects them, right? And like sort of that makes the point. Um, And this is um, this this big theme, right, rejection and faith and all that, Um, We're going to be looking at a saddle verse between two stories, and it's going to drive this point home, right? And there's probably six of these saddle verses where John, like, glues sections together. Um, In technical terms, it's called a seam, right? You know, when you buy a new suit or or something, you look at it, and you can see the seams, you know, where they sewed it together. Well, these are – John uses seams that sort of connect these pieces and make the points, so we're going to kind of dive into this saddle verse, which sits between two sections and makes a point. And this verse we're going to look at, man, it's been a headache for um, commentaries, right? And like scholars, they'll look at this and like, what is John doing here? And we'll explain why in a minute. Just be aware this is confounding. It's confusing if you, if you miss it out of context, right? Anybody ever heard one sentence out of context and wanted to like, punch someone? It happens, right? Every married man in the room... <laughs> should say, hey, that's happened to me. My wife has heard me say something out of context, Anyway, um, so the context of the text, um, Jesus changes water into wine. That's the first thing in his public ministry, right? That's in chapter two. He changes water into wine. He goes to Jerusalem right away. So like you have a handful of folks to aware, like Jesus performed this miracle. He made alcohol at a party. That makes him a very popular guy. Um, he goes to, to um, Jerusalem many miles away to the city from this very rural area, um, and he um, spends time in the city. Um, First thing he does when he gets there is he makes a whip out of cords and clears out the temple, right? There's animals there. They're selling stuff. They're sort of pushing the Gentiles, the second-class citizens out. He chases people out. And when he's done chasing people out, the temple authorities come to him, and they're like, hey, you're going to give us a sign or a miracle showing why you have authority to do this? Um, And Jesus' response is, hey, you know what? I'm going to do any parlor tricks for you people. I'm not, you know, I'm not a magic act. The only sign you're going to get is tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about his own body. He says, you people are going to kill me and I'm going to come back in three days. Right. Just had Easter. We just talked about this, but he refuses to do miracles on demand. Right. And the authorities want him to do that because like, if you have a guy who can do miracles, man, that's good for your religion. Right. Like if I could heal people, that would be awesome. Because people would come here so that I could heal them. They might not care about other things that we're doing, but man, if you can heal me or give me winning lottery numbers, I'm here, right? Um, So they ask him for this, and Jesus will not play their game. And he kind of puts them off. Um, We jump into the next, like, section of the story. He walks away from the temple, and he performs miracles and preaches. And all these people who are in the city for the holiday visiting um, see him perform these miracles and hear him teach, and they are blown away, right? And these folks go home when they're done, and Jesus starts traveling around and preaching, and guess what? They're like, hey, I saw you, right? I know who you are, and that's going to play into what we're looking at. It's very important. There's a lot of setup here. I'm doing my best um, to do it quick so that it, I don't bore you too much. Um, thank you for not yelling too late. Um, <laughs> And so he, in chapter 3, he meets with one of the Pharisees, and the Pharisee's asking him these questions. Hey, can you explain religion to me? Can you explain God to me? And like, um, Jesus explains it, and the guy is dumb, and he has very weak faith, and he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, and like we get John 3.16 out of that, for God to love the world, that's John himself explaining things to the reader, because the conversation ends, the Pharisee is dumb, he has no idea what's going on, he doesn't get it, so John, and his authorship, his gospel, he explains it. This is what's really going on. Um, But again, weak faith, right? Chapter 3, all about the weak faith of the leadership of Israel. So this is another example. There's weak faith. Then Jesus performs miracles. And then there's more weak faith. And then we jump into chapter 4. Jesus is coming back home. And he passes through Samaria, right? And the Samaritans meet him. And he doesn't do any miracles. But they're like, you're awesome. Teach us stuff. Stay here. And, like, Samaritans, I don't know, who are the lowest people in our culture? Like, used car salesmen, politicians? I mean, like, <laughs> it's probably, like, imagine two or three steps below that. Like, in that culture, if you were a good Jew and you walked through Samaria, when you got to the other side, you beat your shoes to make sure you got the dust off of it so you didn't bring any Samaritan dirt into Israel. Like, you would walk to the other side of the street and spit on the ground as they passed. Right. And they didn't. I mean, they did not like the Samaritans, but Jesus spends two days hanging out in Samaria, preaching and teaching. They're all listening to him. Right. Because of what he's saying and who he is, not because of what they're getting out of him. Everybody with me. All right. So we come to the end of that. And this is John chapter four, 43 to 44. Um, we're actually just going to go to 45. That's three verses. Let's see if I can do two hours with it. Um, <laughs> After two days, he departed for Galilee, meaning he hung out for the two days they asked him to hang out. He teaches, he preaches, he does everything. And then as he's going back to his hometown, he's actually born in, well, we'll get into that in a second. Um, Jesus, like he explains this is in the next verse, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He leaves these folks who love him and love him because of his, who he is, actually, right? And then they are going to his hometown and John inserts, "Prophet has no honor in his hometown," right? And and there's a lot of reasons for this verse, but it like comes out funny here in John. It's in all the gospels, which is kind of cool. He actually says it out loud. We're going to look at one of the instances in Luke. This is chapter four, verse twenty-one. Very 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 beginning of Jesus' ministry. He gets up in the temple or in the synagogue in his hometown, which is he's living in. Um, Not Nazareth, that's the community, the larger area he's living in. Where is he from, guys? Why am I drawing a blank? You ever have one of those coffee list moments? What? Galilee. Galilee. Galilee's the area in Nazareth. He's in Nazareth. I'm sorry. Um, I went to seminary for this. (laughs) Um, I sometimes, anyway... um, and he said to them, like, so he reads this scripture verse that's like this big prediction about the gospel being preached to the poor and the lame being healed and everything else. And he began, to, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in all your hearing. So he says this, and then everybody who's present, they speak well of him and marveled at the words, at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So they're like, man, this guy really knows his stuff, but isn't he the son of the carpenter? does that guy know anything? Anybody ever have that happen to you? Like where people who know you, you know, hey, I know you. I grew up with you. You can't fool me. Right. I sometimes hear that about preachers. Like when you talk to people who grew up with them, well, I grew up with that guy. You don't know. You know, <laughs> yeah, he looks good now. But my, my wife might say this occasionally. Yeah, my husband, he looks good now, but you don't know where he's been. Um, so they're impressed, but they're like, hey, isn't this Joseph's son's? Um, And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Now, in Luke, like he's performed miracles in other communities. He does this thing. The people are like, Oh, isn't this Joseph's son? Listen to him teach. But he does perform miracles. That's good. And then Jesus says, Hey, you know what? You're about to say, Physician, heal yourself. This proverb was super common in the ancient world. And what it meant was it had a bunch of different meanings. In this context, it means Hey, if you can do good stuff everywhere else, you better do that good stuff times 10 at home, right? Meaning like if I were very wealthy and I went out and spread money all around, and then I were to come back here and folks start looking at me saying, hey, where's the money you're going to spread around here? Does that make sense? And so like the people around them are like, hey, we're family. Go ahead and start doing stuff for us. Let's see some some work. Let's see some magic tricks. Let's see some miracles. Come on, let's do this. And so Jesus, before it cuts him off, he says, hey, you're doubtless going to tell me, start doing stuff for us. Physician, heal yourself. But um, there are, what we have heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, like I said, he was doing miracles. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus goes on and explains it. You're expecting me to do stuff like I did in Capernaum. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and when the heavens were shut up for three years, meaning it didn't rain for three years and six months, and the great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath, um, to the land of Sidon, to a a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, only Naaman and the Syrians. These are two stories from the Old Testament. Jesus says, hey, you know what? You guys are expecting miracles out of me. You're expecting me to perform some tricks. You want something from me. But in reality, God ain't going to give it to you. Because if you look in the Old Testament, there are all these prophets who did cool stuff and these great stories. But they didn't do these great things for their own people. They did them for foreigners. And the same thing's about to happen here. You ain't getting nothing from me. Right? Now, why would Jesus say that? Is he just being a jerk? Actually, it's more than that. He's looking at them, and he realizes they want something. It's a little like me bringing flowers home and my wife saying, what'd you do? What do you want? Right? Because my doing nice things for her sometimes in the past has been about, I want what I want and I need you to be on board. Does this make sense? And these folks are looking at Jesus and they got nice things to say to him because they want what they want and they need him to be on board. So they're like Jesus, you're awesome. Come on, let's, you know, we love you so much. He's like, yeah, but you don't really love me. You love what I can do, right? You love what you can get from me. You love, you know, this aspect of it. And he's saying, listen, you're not going to get it. And it was the same way in the Old Testament. These things just, they don't work that way. And when they heard these things, all of this love disappears, right? All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What do you mean you're not doing anything for us? And they went from praising him to, hey, let's kill him. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill which was built, uh, on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So, like, they gather him up and they take him out of town to kill him. Because he said, basically associates himself with Elijah and Elijah. And so he's saying, hey, I'm a prophet, and they're okay with him doing miracles. And they probably would be okay with him being a prophet if if he paid out. Right? Right. Um, but since he ain't paying out, they're like, well, not only are you not doing stuff for us, but you know, we're going to kill you because you're blaspheming. Yeah, all right. And he basically escapes from him because he's Jesus. He could do stuff like that. Um, the idea, I'm, the reason I'm putting this out there is Jesus says, hey, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. You got all these folks who are in Jerusalem, saw him doing miracles, heard him teach, totally fell in love with him. They all went home. Jesus goes home. They see him coming and John 4.45, this is the last verse from our section. Um, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they, too, had gone to the feast. They knew he could do miracles, and they are like, hey, the miracle worker's here. Let's get something. You know, hey, let's do this. Now, we live in a crazy time. Can everybody sort of agree with this? If you go into a Christian bookstore, like, I, it drives me nuts. I don't even go to Christian bookstores very much anymore because, like, they'll have these shelf, like the bestsellers. And about a half to three-quarters of the bestsellers are written by guys who say, if you do these things for God, he's going to pay out, right? If you just send my ministry money, you will be blessed times ten, right? Um, the big example in the last year was the – what's that guy's name? He wanted an airplane. Not just an airplane. What's his name? Yeah, Creflo Dollar. I, I, God said I need an airplane. and You guys got to buy it for me. And if you buy this airplane for me, you'll be extra blessed. Like God is a vending machine, right? Throw enough change in, God will give you what you want. The problem is, right, the problem is that um, relationships don't work that way. The reason, gentlemen, here's a little tip. This is aside from the sermon. The reason your wife doesn't appreciate the flowers that you give her because you're trying to get out of trouble for saying something stupid is she knows you're giving her flowers to get out of trouble, right? She wants you to do things because you love her, not because you're after something. I, I, you know, and it, it, when she figures that out, the more you do something to get something from her, the worse it makes it. Women, am I wrong? I'd say it louder. I wanted, I'm not, so seldomly am right. I'd like to, <laughs> it doesn't happen often, um, and the same is the case for Jesus. So Jesus comes to his home area Galilee, like he's coming into the the area where he grew up and and everybody knows him and they know what he's going to do and they're excited and Jesus is like, "Oh, here we are, right? You guys are just going to ask me for stuff. You don't want who I am. You don't love me for who I am. You want what I can give you." And this is kind of this recurring battle throughout the scriptures. We see it in the Old Testament where the people, the Jewish people would perform certain rituals and acts and they say, Well if we do this, God will do things for us. Right? If we, you know, sacrifice these animals, God'll bless us. If we, you know, do the right dance and the right words, God will give us rain and money and all kinds of other things. But God doesn't work that way. God is not interested in what we can do for Him. Right? It's like my kids who'll say, Well, Dad, if you just give me a little extra candy, I'll sit and cuddle and hug with you and tell you how much I love you. Okay. I don't really, you know, I like that stuff, but, like, in reality, you know, I don't have to pay you for it, right? And I don't want to pay you for it. Um, That was, Abby got mad at me the other day because I wouldn't do something for her. Uh, She wanted me to make her bed for her, right? Actually, I get very little out of her bed being made. I know it's a shock, but she got so frustrated because she kept trying to talk me into doing it and talk me into doing it. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. You can make your own bed. I've seen you do it. You can do it. No, I can't. I need you to help me. I need you to do it for me. Come on, come on, come on. And finally, she got so mad, she stomped her feet and made little fists, and she yelled, I don't love you anymore. (laughs) And then she discovered the other end of the conversation, because it turns out I'm capable of a little rat. Um, (laughs) um, I'm sorry. I'm (laughs) sorry. But the reality is the Jewish people would do these things to God and say, "Well, God, do tricks for us, give us what we want and God would say, "You know what you don 't worship me because I give you things, you worship me because you love me right If my daughter loves me because I make my make her bed for her that's that 's a problem right My daughter loves me because I do things for her that 's a problem if you know if I only do nice things for my wife when I want something from her that 's a problem, and in reality if I want things from God, and so I respond to Him. Is how I operate. That's a problem, because God wants to be in relationship. Um, the Book of Job. Has anybody ever read the Book of Job? I mean, that is some cheerful reading, isn't it? Um, but the Book of Job. If you look at it, the whole story of the Book of Job, like like the author, the guy who like put it down to paper, like gives us a theological treatise, like an explanation of a theological idea, and that is. You worship God because he's God, not because of what he can do for you, right? Job kept worshiping God. He got pretty ticked off, and he sort of demanded, hey, God, come answer for your crimes. But he continued to worship, and he continued to love God, and he never curses him. He gets pretty frustrated and angry and everything else. But in the end, like, God comes back around and says, you know what? I'm God, right? You want an explanation for why I do things? You answer some questions for me. How do you make a hippopotamus? I don't know how to do that. And He's like, well, you know what? You can't make flowers, you can't make the sunrise. you can't do any of that stuff, so you don't understand why I do what I do. You worship me because I do those things. You love me because I do those things, not because of what I'm giving you. Um, And the same is true of Jesus. Jesus is God's son. Jesus came into this earth to die for our sins, to take punishment for the, the rotten stuff we do. And when we approach him and say, you know, hey, that forgiveness thing is wonderful, but could you please... Do all this other stuff for me because I'm not that interested in being forgiven. I really want a new car. (laughs) I really want a nicer house. I really want to win the lottery just once. Um, It sort of throws us off. Like it's not how relationship works. Um, In the next section, we got actually a reinforcing idea. We're going to talk about this more in depth next week. But this guy comes to Jesus and asks him, hey, can you perform this miracle for me? And Jesus' response is, unless you see signs and wonders, none of you people are going to believe me right? Because he, he knew the guy just wanted a miracle. Um, when we approach God in that way, and this is going to be the theme of the next few sermons, right? It's going to work its way through the next couple stories. Um, and even a conversation about the Sabbath, this idea don't work on the Sabbath, It's it plays into that. Like that'll be three weeks from now. Like we do things because we love God. We do things because like he loves us enough to die for us. We do things because he has just he's God, because he's awesome. Um, We love in good, healthy relationship because we love someone. I don't love my kids because they make their beds. Because if I did, (laughs) they'd be in trouble, right? I don't love my wife because, you know, she does things for me. I love my wife because I love my wife, right? Because like she's this awesome gift that God gave me. I love my kids because they are these awesome gifts that God has given me. Um, Not because of what I get. Um, And This is the way God intends our lives to work out. I'm going to skip my next verse here, guys. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not. Um, Real quick aside, this is going to play out all the way to the end of the book. Um, After Jesus is killed, after he's resurrected, before he's appeared to Thomas, Thomas comes out and he's like, you know what? I don't believe Jesus came back to life. I'll believe it when he shows up and I can stick my finger in the hole in his hand and I can stick my hand in the hole in his side. Then I'll believe he came back to life. But until then, uh uh-uh. And he's not done saying it when Jesus walks in the room and is like, hey, here you go. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Um, But faith is this funny thing, right? Faith is a funny thing. Faith is this thing that operates outside of our sinful inclination. Our sinful inclination is, I believe what pays off. Isn't it true? And I believe what gives me stuff. I believe what pays off. I believe what works. Um, And in reality, like going to be times and stuff ain't going to pay off. Joel Osteen wrote, you can have your best life now if you just follow Jesus. And in reality, following Jesus might not like turn out that great as far as like your best life. Now might end up homeless. I mean, look at Paul, man. Paul did more in the service of the gospel than any man like, like to that point and probably since. And Paul whipped, beaten, imprisoned, tortured, uh, naked. Eventually they cut his head off after he'd lived in prison for several years. Right, or the apostle Peter, who was like one of Jesus favorites, crucified him upside down after forcing him to watch his wife be crucified right faith doesn't always pay off in monetary gain, faith doesn't always pay off in blessing. Faith pays off in the fact that like God saves us, God draws us close to him. I will never ever be alone. Actually, Larry told that story about the man and his family drowning and and you know as well with my soul, like like, this is the idea. You can take anything from me, but I know that God has me, right? You can never take that away. Um, and this is what we have. This is what God gives us. Um, faith is how we please God. Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You might think I please God by what I do, and in reality, God doesn't need what you do. he could have somebody else do it, right? Um, God desires for us to trust him to obey Him, and to draw close to Him. And ultimately, that means becoming like Jesus. It's not a transaction. It's a new life. Um, We're saved from our sins, not just like saved as in forgiven, but we're pulled out of them. Has anybody ever had a sin that just dragged you down you couldn't get away from it? Every time I try to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing, right? No matter how hard I try, the thing I hate is the thing I always do. That's from the Apostle Paul, Romans 7, Right? Um, it's Paul who said that. Like we're all stuck if he can't get past it. But in reality, the closer we draw to Jesus, the closer he pulls us to him, the further away he pulls us from that stuff. You know, He saves us from sin because he helps us not do it. And when we do it, he forgives us. Um, everything in the Christian life, you showing up here, us singing, us praying, us hugging each other in the beginning of the service. Um, everything, everything, everything is about intimate relationship with God. And if it ain't about that, we're lost. Right? That's what matters. Um, we're going to, because it's the beginning of the month, we always do the beginning of the month, we do communion. And I'm going to call my guys forward, and I'm going to talk about this for a second. We're going to worship God by taking communion. And what this is, first off, we invite anybody who's a believer in Jesus to take communion. That's how we are. If you have faith in Christ, if he saved you from your sins, if you are like his, do this with us. And what it is, communion is the symbol, right? It symbolizes the fact that, Jesus died for us, and not only are we forgiven, not only, like, are we close with him, but we're so close with him, it's like we're consuming him and making him a part of us. We eat the, eat the bread and drink the wine because, or the juice here, I'm, we're from that strain of Christianity. Um, <laughs> we do this because it's so meaningful, it's like it becomes a part of me. I take it inside, and it's a part of me. Like, it is that much. Like, we consume Christ in everything that we are because it is the spiritual food and drink that makes us alive. And so, as we prepare our hearts, like as we do this, bring your heart to a place where you recognize that this is an act that doesn't save you, it doesn't ensure.